When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Kia ora and welcome to Extra Time, RNZ Sports Podcast. I'm Richard Wayne. In this week's programme, tennis joins athletics and football as a corruption scandal is revealed, with top players fingered as allegedly having thrown matches. We hear from everyone from Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer to former NZ number one Brett Stephen and one of the BBC reporters who worked on the story for six years. Well, it's not true that it's all in the past. It's worse than ever. There was evidence of gamblers linked to players through phone evidence. Investigators we talk to who work in the integrity field say that kind of evidence is incredibly strong. Also this week, big changes at the breakers as the New Zealand champions of Australian basketball look to the future. So are they admitting that this season's title defence is already a write-off as they change the coach and the big boss? He said this at the start of his tenure three years ago, that he was going to be walking away. I didn't believe him. Plus, Auckland heavyweight boxer Joseph Parker fights in Samoa. Geraldine Rally star Hayden Padden and why he's driving the old Hyundai at the current World Rally Championship race in Monte Carlo. And cycling finds out its allocation for the Rio Olympics. First up this week, secret files exposing widespread suspected match-fixing at the top levels of tennis have sent shockwaves through the sport. The documents revealed by the BBC and BuzzFeed on the opening day of the Australian Open say that over the last decade, 16 players ranked inside the top 50 in the world have been repeatedly flagged to the sport's Tennis Integrity Unit over suspicions they've thrown matches, including at Wimbledon. All of the players, including supposed winners of Grand Slam titles, were allowed to continue competing. World number 1 Novak Djokovic confirmed after his first round match in Melbourne on Monday that he was offered over US $200,000 to throw a first round match in St. Petersburg 10 years ago. I was not approached directly. I was approached through people that were working with me at that time. They were in my team. And of course, we, we, we threw it away right away. I mean, it didn't even get to me. The guy that was trying to, uh, to talk to me, he didn't, he didn't even get to me directly. So there was nothing out of it. You know, it made me feel terrible because I don't want to be anyhow linked to this kind of... Somebody may call it an opportunity. I call it a... For me, that's, that's an act of unsportsmanship, a, a crime in sport, honestly. Later in the week, Novak Djokovic was subsequently linked by an Italian newspaper to allegations of throwing a match at the Paris Masters in 2007, which he vehemently denied. The president of the Association of Tennis Professionals, Chris Kermode, says there's a big difference between reports and allegations and hard evidence. The Tennis Integrity Unit uh, and the tennis authorities absolutely reject any suggestion that evidence of match-fixing has been suppressed for any reason Uh, or isn't being thoroughly investigated. And while the BBC and BuzzFeed reports mainly refer to events from about 10 years ago, we will investigate any new information, and we always do. 
In its investigations, the Tennis Integrity Unit has to find evidence as opposed to information, suspicion, or hearsay. And this is the key here, that it requires evidence. And a year-long investigation into the SOPOP match in 2007 found insufficient evidence. And as the BuzzFeed report states itself, the investigators had hit a brick wall and it just wasn't possible to determine who the guilty party was in relation to this match. ATP President Chris Kermode says Tennis Integrity Unit anti-corruption investigations have resulted in 18 convictions with six ending in life bans and they are absolutely committed to stamping out any corrupt conduct in their sport. However, the issue of tennis corruption is worse than ever, according to one of the BBC reporters behind the latest allegations. Simon Cox worked on the story for six years and he thinks the authorities are throwing up a smokescreen around the historical nature of that 2007 match in Sopot, Poland, between the Russian Nikolai Davidenko and Argentina's Martin Vassalo Aguelo, which sparked the initial probe. Cox told Morning Report the issue is by no means historical. Well, it's not true that it's all in the past. I was talking to a a, a former player who's now a coach two days ago, he said to me it's worse than ever um, that he had players who were being approached. I think what is fair to say is certainly talking to some of the very big betting organisations. They say that in the past few years, more of the matches have moved down to you know the, the, the second and third division of tennis, if you like, but they still have matches in the top tier. One uh, source we were talking to had reported five matches of a player in the last year. Some of those are very, very you know, important, prestigious tournaments. Uh, and this is, a, you know, a, a, a high ranking player. So there are still reports going into the tennis authorities of high ranking players involved in important tournaments. Obviously, these are allegations. But what? The organisations who are saying who are putting them in, and this is why they were saying to us, this is part of the reason for doing the story. They are incredibly frustrated because they don't think tennis is acting upon them. And we had talked to sources in lots of different fields doing this. We had lots and lots of sources on this story. It wasn't just one or two as well as documents. So we feel there is a strong body of evidence that actually tennis isn't doing as much as it could to deal with this. Swiss great Roger Federer was another to cast doubt on the allegations as being historical in nature and Federer called for any players involved in match fixing to be named. I would like, like to hear the name, you know, I would love to hear names, you know, and then at least it's con concrete stuff and you can actually debate about it. Was it the player, was it the support team, who was it, you know, is it now, was it before, was it a doubles player, was it a singles player, which slap, you know, I mean, it's so all over the place. But Simon Cox says they made a decision not to name the players involved as they didn't have the actual evidence which was given to the Tennis Integrity Unit. But the hard evidence certainly exists, and the TIU has it. There was evidence of gamblers linked to players through phone evidence. Investigators we talk to who work in the integrity field say that kind of evidence is incredibly strong. One I was talking to just today said, you know, that is irrefutable evidence, as he put it. He was a very senior police officer who'd worked on this investigation. So when you have that kind of evidence, it goes to tennis and they say, actually, we don't think it's strong enough. We're going to pass on that. We're not going to investigate that players. Then going forward, when you have repeated betting alerts and those aren't also being acted upon, that's what worries the betting organisations, the betting companies, the integrity experts, the police, who are all passing alerts to tennis.
Well, Brett Stephen is a former New Zealand number one, of course. Stephen was ranked as high as number 32 in the world and 16 in doubles. He played in many of the tournaments now being discussed, although it was before the period under scrutiny. RNZ's John Campbell asked Stephen if he was surprised by the allegations. I wish I would say yes, but I'm not, actually. I guess we've seen uh, pockets of allegations come out over the past say five or six years around sort of the match fixing and spot fixing and betting that was going on in tennis and how there could have been some player involvement and if all of this story turns out to be true it will be extremely disappointing and a black mark on the sport but coupled with other scandals that have gone on and you know what do we got the IAAF and FIFA and all the rest of it and cycling etc so no I'm not I'm not surprised it's unfortunate to have to say that but it's tennis is a sport which probably lends itself quite easily to sort of, you know, throwing matches or throwing sets or throwing games. The accusations seem to well and truly come after your career. Were you aware with the change in the kind of betting that could be done on tennis of a growth in this sort of activity after you retired? Uh, well, I finished in 99. I only played half the year in 1999. And during my times playing in tournaments, say, like Wimbledon or whatnot, you'd be aware of, say, Ladbrokes with odds on who's going to win the tournament or who's going to win the match. And I can vaguely remember in my day sort of the odd tournament like that having, you know, head-to-head odds on matches and sort of coaches and players sort of looking at them and being a bit intrigued by them, but not really ever anyone participating or even thinking about it. It just didn't enter into the equation. Brett, we, we don't, obviously the usual rules of defamation apply, and we, and we don't, mm. I'm not asking you to name names because no one can be certain. Mm. But are there matches or players or tournaments that you have raised an eyebrow over? There's this example that I've read today, and it's been talked about previously the betting that went on in the one Davidenko match that looks very suspicious and, and surprised that that sort of didn't lead to anything further when you read into sort of the you know, the the circumstances of that match. And I'm sure there's many, many other matches. And I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, In fact, it's it's probably been um, suggested to me that a lot more of the sort of dodgy practices that are going on, if there are um, such, uh, are occurring in some of the tournaments that are not the highest echelon of the ATP Tour. So some of the smaller ranked futures and challenger tournaments where it's perhaps a little bit easier to manipulate the players, manipulate the mm. uh, the results. And that's maybe where, you know, the tennis authorities certainly need to put a lot more attention on because those players who are playing in those types of tournaments are not earning anywhere near the mm. money um, and are far more incentivized to want to sort of be a part of this sort of dodgy practice. Brett Stephen speaking to John Campbell. We also heard from Simon Cox, one of the BBC reporters behind the latest allegations, Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer and ATP President Chris Kermode. This is Extra Time. Still to come, Joseph Parker's Rumble in Paradise in Samoa. Hayden Padden drives an old car in the iconic Monte Carlo Rally. And what bike NZ is up against at the Rio Olympics later this year. Basketball now, and there's been a clean-out this week at the struggling New Zealand Breakers. Coach Dean Vickerman is to be replaced by his assistant Paul Hanare at the end of the current Australian National Basketball League season. Vickerman was assistant coach of the Breakers for their first three championships and he coached them to the title last year. But he's now handing over the reins to Hanare, who's also the New Zealand men's coach, with the Australian not having his contract renewed. The Breakers have won four of the past five championships, but they've slumped to fifth in the competition as the playoffs approach.
However, Bickerman insists his leaving was planned at the start of his three-year contract as head coach. Now, it's not every coach goes into their job thinking about succession plan. I just knew, you know, with me and Andre being here for a long time, that one of the greatest things about a, an import coming to another country is to, to help upskill and then, you know, hopefully leave it to the local guys to take over. And, and that was always my mission. Dean Bickerman says he has nothing planned for his future yet, which seems strange given he's apparently had three years to think about it. But his successor, Paul Hinare, says the Australian had always indicated that he'd only be in the job for three years. He said this at the start of his tenure three years ago, that he was going to be walking away. I didn't believe him at the time. And he then told me uh, near the start of this season that he was still sticking by that decision. And again, I still didn't think he was going to do it, but he, he stayed true to his word. Another former player, Dylan Boucher, is to become the Breakers' new general manager. Boucher replaces Foundation GM Richard Clark, who's in his 13th season with the club. Clark's off to join former Breakers coach Andre Lamanis at the Brisbane Bullets, who are returning to the ANBL next season. Hanare says the big changes are a natural progression for the Auckland side. You know, we've known for a while, especially you know, gone through the process for you know, a couple of months ago, however long ago it was, it seems like a long time ago now. So for it to come out now, it's, it's, I guess it's, it's part of who we are as a club. You know, we're, we're, we're an honest club, we're an open club, and, and we want it to be open and, and honest. You know, what's the right time to make this announcement? Who really knows what the perfect time is? But I, I think the one thing we did early on was, um, was let the team know um, and let the staff know about Dean and, and Rich's decisions about... Uh, what they're doing moving forward. Paul Hanare is now set to coach both the Breakers and the Tall Blacks, but he doesn't think there'll be any issues with him holding down both his club and national jobs at the same time. Hanare says if he thought there would be an issue, he wouldn't have stood for the Breakers' job, though he concedes doing both will require a bit of planning. There will be some teething problems, especially uh, once we go into the windows. Next Breakers' season, there won't be any issues. There, there needs to be some, I guess, firm decisions, especially from the league. Is the league going to break for those windows, or are they going to continue? If they continue, then that's when we're going to need some, some forward thinking and some planning around that. Paul Hanare and his Tall Blacks will attend a last chance tournament this year in an attempt to qualify for the Rio Games. You're listening to Extra Time. I'm Richard Wayne. While excitement is building in the Samoan capital, Apia, where the Auckland heavyweight boxer Joseph Parker is to fight America's Jason Bergman in the so-called Rumble in Paradise. Parker, a 24-year-old Samoan New Zealander, has never been beaten in 17 professional bouts. But he could have met his match in the 31-year-old left-hander Bergman, who's won 16 of his last 18 fights. RNZ International's Vinnie Wiley reports. The Samoan Tourism Authority's Sua Hesed Itamea says Joseph Parker is the biggest thing to hit up here since the All Blacks. We had the welcoming of Joseph Parker at the Falula International Airport, and that was a packed event. And a lot of fans have travelled near and far to have a glimpse of their hero, Joseph. RNZ's correspondent in Apia, Altangavaya Tipi Altangavaya, says it's clear Parker is a big star in Samoa. Very much a celebrity here, and looking at the uh, decorations of some of the villages from the airport to Apia, it's quite amazing. Hesed Idemir says the main street in Apia will be packed this morning, as both boxers take part in a parade to Parliament. Following that, we'll have a keynote address by the Honourable Minister of Tourism, who is also the Prime Minister. Following that will then be the official weigh-in. 
everybody here in Samoa is excited, and I'm sure every Samoan around the world uh, excited for the event because this might be the only time Joseph would have a chance to fight in Samoa as he makes his way towards that title shot. The Secretary of the New Zealand Professional Boxing Association, Pat Leonard, says it was Parker's choice to fight in Samoa. He treats Samoa as his home country, and consequently Joseph wanted a fight in Samoa. It'll be a big thing for the Samoan people. I think it's absolutely wonderful that they can see possibly uh, some of theirs from Samoa who could be a future world heavyweight title holder, and they can say, yes, I saw him fight in Samoa. The Rumble in Paradise will be Parker's sixth fight in ten months, and his coach, Kevin Barry, says he's only had four weeks to prepare the boxer for his first left-handed or southpaw opponent. There were a couple of times during this camp that uh, Joe got hands put on him and he probably got hit a little bit more than what I would have liked and definitely a little bit more than what he has in other training camps. So, you know, it's definitely been a challenge for him to get used to the southpaw style. Parker says he's carrying some minor injuries and is looking forward to a holiday once he's dealt with tomorrow's business in the ring. We said we have niggles and a bit hurt here and there, lower back and elbow, but we were coming to every fight 100% ready and what can I say, I haven't had... Uh, end of year, yeah, you know, I've uh, been training right through, so I'm looking forward to the break after this fight, and um, I'm going to finish this year off with uh, fireworks. So it's, it's going to be the guns blazing uh, in, in Samoa. His opponent, Jason Bergman, says the people of Apia should get ready for an upset. I hope that uh, he's feeling 100% ready to uh, go to war. Um, I feel it's going to be a very competitive fight. I come here to win, not not for a paycheck. I'm going to shock the world. I'm going to be ready to uh, die in that ring. I hope he is too. Both heavyweights are hopeful that winning the Rumble in Paradise will earn them a shot at a world title. That's Vinnie Wiley, and this is Extra Time. Shortly we'll catch up with Cycling New Zealand's High Performance Director Mark Elliott about the Rio Games. Now though, the new World Rally Championship season gets underway this weekend in Monte Carlo. The Geraldine driver Hayden Padden and his co-driver John Kennett will compete in the event for the first time. And it's also the first time a New Zealand pair have driven together in the iconic race. Padden had an encouraging year last year with the Hyundai team, and he signed a new three-year deal with the Korean outfit. However, he'll be driving last season's old factory Hyundai at Monte Carlo, while his teammates Terry Neuville and Danny Sordo will get to take the new generation cars on the tarmac, snow and ice in the Principality. It's a short break between seasons, but when I rang him up in Monte Carlo... Padden told me it was nice to have a bit of time off over Christmas. I know we had a bit of time off uh, in New Zealand uh, between Christmas and New Year, time to sort of switch off and spend a bit of time with family and friends, which was quite nice. Down south and uh, down the lake, uh, down in central Otago, so good to get out in the water and out on the bike and all the things that we don't get to do while we're over here. What are your aims this year? I mean, I, I'm sure making more podiums at least. Um, is, is, is victory uh, you know, on, the, on the radar, do you think? Yeah, we basically have to um, look at the process of what we want to do and, and what we want to achieve over the next two or three years, which is to try and win the World Championship. And, and to do that is about making the necessary steps forward to, to do that. And, uh, you know, the biggest step we have to make now is to try and win the first rally. We've got the resources to try and do that this year with the new car, another year of experience under our belt. And, you know, that's certainly what we're going to be pushing for. But not targeting one event in particular. We're just going to try and push as hard as we can on all the events and, and try and get strong uh, results on, on every opportunity we can. So it is quite a methodical thing, isn't it? Like even from the ground up, from from doing reconnaissance, you know, around a new rally like Monte Carlo for you and, and onwards and, and looking at a longer term, couple of years, sort of quite methodical. 
Yeah, like in, in this game, it, it does take a long time to, to build up the necessary experience. You know, you, you only get the opportunity to come to a rally once every year. You can't come here practicing in between times or you can't rely on simulators. So you do have to rely on, on raw experience. And uh, like you said, this is our first time doing this rally here in Monty. Uh, but then in the second part of the year, uh, we're going back to events that we've done four or five times before and, and they are events that we can really sort of target. But, um, you know, it's part of the process. Uh, rallies like this one, we've got to be patient and, and just let the learning happen. Now, you've uh, done some base notes. You had a bit of a recce already. That, that stuff's absolutely crucial, isn't it? And, and John Kennard really comes into his own there. Yeah, like the rallying is a big game about preparation and obviously the reconnaissance and, and making our pace notes for the rally is where a rally can be won or lost. And making sure we uh, record all the right information down, uh, describe the road the best we can. And then, of course, uh, if we've done a good job of that now, then it makes uh, the job in the weekend very easy. And it's the first time a couple of New Zealanders have been in a car together at Monte Carlo, I understand. Yeah, well, it's, it's probably one of the most uh, historic events on the calendar, I think. It's uh, where rallying almost started many, many years ago, and I think it's one of the only events that uh, maybe any Kiwis haven't done before, so um, nice if we can put a nice uh, touch on it and uh, leave our mark here. And, and how, how is it with John? He's a bit older than you, isn't he? So is it sort of the wise old head and, and the young gun? Is that the, the dynamic at work, do you think? Yeah, it, it just seems to work and it seems to click uh, ever since we started working together and we have different strengths in different areas and, and when we put those together it, it seems to be a perfect combination and um, you know, we're always trying to develop ourselves and, and improve and, and go faster with every rally and every year and, and, and this year's no different. Right, look, I've got to ask, how come your Hyundai teammates, uh, Neuville and Sordo, get to drive the new car, the new Hyundai, and, and you're still in the old car in Monte Carlo? Yeah, look, this is the, the only rally that we're, we're going to be in the old car. Basically, uh, you know, Danny and, and Terry have, have both got a lot of experience here and, and are the best people that have the new car and, and be scoring the points for the team. Uh, as it's only the, the first two drivers that score points. For us, learning such a tricky rally like this, it's, it's probably actually an advantage and, and a little bit easier for us to be doing it in a car that we're, that we're familiar with. So come uh, the next rally in Sweden, uh, for the rest of the year, we have the new car. So... We're looking forward to that. Um, in the meantime, we'll focus on this weekend, do the best job we can, and um, hopefully uh, sign out with the old car with a, a good result. New Zealand rally driver Hayden Patton, who's begun well in Monte Carlo. Patton finished seventh and fourth in the first two stages, and he's fifth overall after the opening night session. Lastly, on Extra Time this week, the allocation of men's places for the road races at the Rio Olympics have been announced by the World Body of Cycling, the UCI. And New Zealand gets just two road race places and only one for the individual time trial. The top nations in world cycling get five places in the race, which means they can take a more of a... which means they can... The top nations in world cycling get five places in the road race, which means they can take more of a team approach, while Australia gets four. Cycling New Zealand High Performance Director Mark Elliott told our reporter Barry Guy that getting just two places was to be expected. You know, based on where the Australians sit, um, you know, UCI rules and Olympic qualification rules are, are pretty complex, but with the Aussies being a, uh, a very strong rogue nation, it means that New Zealand picks up um, some spots as the second-ranked Oceania team. So, yeah, it's uh, to be expected for us to get two spots in the road race, and uh, obviously with that, um, you get a, um, a spot in the TT. So it's um, it's as we would have expected to uh, play out for this Olympics. Just explain the Australians and their role in the you know world tours and that sort of thing compared to New Zealanders. Yeah, so um, you know a lot of uh, the Australians obviously have um, Orica Greenedge, a very strong pro team, and. 
you know, a lot of dedicated Australians are riding across the professional peloton, and that's where Olympic ranking points come from, is who are the guys in uh, the nation's winning um, sprinting events, uh, essentially, or, or major events like stages in the Tour de France. And, you know, from New Zealand's perspective, we have some strong pro tour riders, but a, a lot of them um, are really supporting roles. I mean, Greg Henderson, you know, regarded as one of the strongest lead-out men around at the moment. Um, Sam Bewley, Jesse Sargent, always doing a lot of work on the front of the peloton. They're not there to win races, they're there to actually help others win races, and unfortunately that means you're on big points. So don't really you know, get uh, get given for being an assistant. Uh, should be uh, a little bit like an assistant basketball, I suspect. Exactly. Uh, I suppose, um, you know, in some way, if you're a powerful cycling nation, then there is some justification for the numbers that that you get. But it does make it difficult to get a team sort of approach to a road event when you've only got a couple of uh, athletes in there. Yeah, and and that's a tough uh, you know thing for the public to understand. Um, you know, if you've watched a lot of the Tour de France, uh, you will understand it's cycling is won by an individual, but it's uh, delivered by a team performance and. When you're only racing with one or two riders in a in a major event, and you're up against um, the Spanish or the the French, who who may have five to six riders, it's um, you know it's, it takes a very special rider to overcome and and win in that situation. So it does make it very tough for the smaller nations. But this Olympic course in Rio is uh, would be regarded as one of the toughest Olympic courses I think we've ever seen. Um, it's a very technical course in the first half with. Lots of little climb, 19% gradients, steep descents, and and a couple of big climbs, which they do four times, and, and then they go onto a bigger loop, which even has, I think, has two 5k climbs in it. So it is going to take a very special individual to uh, win it. And New Zealand has a number of special individuals that'll be uh, chasing those couple of spots, I imagine. <laughs> well, I think we have to be realistic that. Um, you know, this Olympic course is going to be won by someone who's uh, pretty much winning stages in the Tour de France. And, um, you know, we're not talking flat stages, we're talking mountain stages. It is um, it is a very special course, and, you know, we'd, we'd say it would, our focus is not going to be really around the road race. It certainly will be on the time trial, and, and even for the likes of Linda Willemson, who we know is very good at positioning herself um, in a road race, you know, the focus will be about the time trial. and. Yeah, I suspect when we uh, look at this course and, and look at the, the riders and where they're at and we look at their race schedules over this next few months, and, you know, I think our focus will certainly look at the time trial first and, and worry about the road race after that. Uh, so in that case, um, are you perhaps just in the severity of the course, are you, are you looking for volunteers even? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, obviously, uh, it's the Olympics and uh, for a lot of riders, you know, there's, there's uh, pinnacles in cycling, the Olympics and the Tour de France are, are two of the big ones and, and I guess um, you know, a lot of our uh, current riders at the moment will be you know, looking predominantly this year to try and get a Tour de France start um, you know, certainly likes of Greg Henderson Sam Bewley, Jesse Sargent Paddy Bevan, George Bennett you know, all of them obviously um, you know, great world class riders but you need to look at the specificity of the course and look at their lead ups and their abilities to to actually deliver on a course like Rio is, is going to be very challenging indeed. What about the time trial course? Of course, we have a world champion in that, so um, how's that looking? Yeah, well, we've spent some uh, you know, real good time uh, completely analysing that course. Um, you know, just following the world champs where Linda did win the world title last year, we um, took Linda into Rio for about five days and uh, were there with her coach, um, did a lot of capture on that course to very much understand it. It's... Um, 
it's a great course. It's a, it's a real challenge. It's technical. Uh, the girls only do one lap, but it um, has a lot of technical corners and descents in it, which will suit Linda because she's a fantastic bike handler. And uh, you know, with the guys, um, you know, it'll, it'll it'll suit a special type of climber as well. It won't suit the biggest guys uh, purely because there is a couple of good climbs in it. Um, so you know, the likes of you know, you see the the best of Jack Bauer and Jesse Sargent in their top form. It um, you know, it might be some opportunities there, but we also know that um, you know, there's some some real class in the likes of Paddy Bevan as well coming through. So it's a very special course. It's it's certainly not an out and back flat motorway course. That's for sure. Mark Elliott of Cycling NZ speaking with Barry Guy. And that's extra time. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can always get all the latest sports news on RNZ and online at radioNZ.co.nz. I'm Richard Wayne. Kakite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.